and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van der Staden of Witt University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And we're thrilled to have back on the show this week uh, Francis Stevens-George, who joins us from Oslo, Norway. Now, Francis Stevens-George, if you didn't hear our previous show, is the author of a brand new book that just came out this year, uh, China and Africa, A Love Affair. Uh, he's also the uh, the creator of Innovations Africa. He's a man of many, many talents. Uh, and uh, we're thrilled to have you back on the show again, uh, Francis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be on the show, and uh, and thank you very much for the fantastic work that you're doing. Thank Wonderful. You. Well, we're we're grateful for the for the hat tip. Uh, last time we talked, if you heard our previous show, we talked about the 1955 Bandung Province and, and the importance that 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 conference had in terms of establishing African Asian relations, uh, particularly Sino African relations, as it was the first conference that the Chinese government, the new Chinese government, the Communist Party uh, led Chinese government came. Came out. Uh, remember, 1949, China had a civil war, uh, and the Republicans who fled to Taiwan uh, were over, overwhelmed by the communists. Now, in 1955, at this conference, uh, it was symbolic and very important for a number of different reasons. And we're not going to focus on the history like we did last time in our last show. So if you want to listen to that, we recommend you check that one out. Today, what we're going to focus on are some of the themes that emerged in that conference in 1955 and see how they're playing out today. And the reason why this is so important is because so much of what we're hearing today is actually grounded and rooted in history, but very few young people, uh, for the most part, have an awareness and an understanding of that history. So we're kind of, you know, trying to kind of roll back the clock a little bit and, and have Francis uh, kind of shed some light on that for us. So, Francis, let's talk about some of the key themes that emerged. And, and number one was this idea of uh, China as a leader of the third world. Let me go through a couple of them and then get your feedback on them. Uh, number one was China as a leader of the third world. Number two, and this is very, very important because this is something we hear today quite a bit in China's rhetoric towards Africa and with Africa, is to say, well, we too were the victims of imperialism and colonialism, and therefore we can bond in a way that the West cannot and then also, this was really the emergence of uh, a foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, and he started to articulate the first kind of inklings of the non-interference policy that is very, very important today in its no-strings-attached form of foreign policy. So I've kind of laid out a couple of those key ideas. Tell me how those were, were grounded in Bandung and how they're playing out today. Um, yeah, um, those were grounded in Bandung for the simple reason, uh, uh, well, um, um, for the simple reason that um, those, those many of the countries there were um, um, under colonial, um, um, <laughs> under colonialism and were essentially emerging from colonialism. So uh, that was why those themes found uh, an audience and they were essentially uh, um, um, accepted by everyone. Today, um, of course, all of those countries are sovereign independent states. So to some extent, the message or, or the um, uh, emphasis on, you know, the shackles of colonialism that has gone out. But there, of course, are two themes that from Bandung that still plays out today. And one is this idea of non-intervention or non-interference in each other's internal affair. 
um, which is also coupled with the mutual respect for their sovereignty and territorial. Uh, and in, in, in my view, this is uh, one of the themes that, you know, 59 years later, it still permeates China's relationship with African countries. It is also, in my view, the source of much of the criticism that is leveled uh, by the West and even, you know, uh, some uh, what you might call not your typically uh, uh, colonial or big power. For us in Scandinavia, for example, that's one of the things that we, 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 uh, we react to, that you cannot just say we are never going to interfere in your internal affairs. Um, and the second, uh, and the second uh, um, uh, 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 theme that came out of Bandung, which is still the case, is is this um, theme that uh, that uh, China and Africa uh, do share uh, some historical uh, connection that uh, that that. Um, uh, manifests itself in the in the sense that both have been colonialized, both have been imp uh, have been under imperialist, meaning that the interest of China is bound up with that of African countries, and and that is something that uh, uh, both sides should be cognizant of. Well, Kobus, let me pick up on that point with you here, and this this notion that that China itself was also a victim of colonialism. It's one of the things that I think in Africa. And when I speak, when I live there and when I speak with my African friends, they kind of almost brush it aside. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and there's really a lack of respect, I think, from the African point of view uh, towards the extent of Japanese, British, American, French uh, colonialism in China and how China had a, a century of humiliation itself that was, that was brutal and violent and, and, and oppressive as, any, as much as anything that we saw in European colonialism of Africa. And I think, I guess my question for you is, do a lot of Africans make the mistake by looking at all foreigners as white? And that is um, that they say, well, our, our history is unique and our pain it was unique. And you can't understand that in part because so much of the African kind of worldview was shaped by colonialism. And mm -hmm. so when they look at a foreigner, you know, whether he's white or Chinese, uh, they see they don't they don't see the differences. And, and, and Kobus, I just I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And, yeah, and I'm speaking know, in broad generalization, so I do apologize for that. One does then when one does land in this kind of swamp of history a little bit when you, you know when you start talking about this, um, and you know there is there is obviously there's the danger of, of having the victim Olympics, you know, in the sense of who was victimized more <laughs> by whom, um, you know, and and that always is and you know kind of I think that is a sport that is sometimes engaged in in Africa, so so that it's and it is problematic frequently. Um, I think also you know, kind of more broadly, it seems to me that maybe a shared history of oppression is maybe not such a strong kind of connecting bond, you know? Um, you know, so, for example, like the the, the prominent um, African-American writer, Richard Wright, um, who's actually, he pops up in very interesting places, all, you know, kind of through the, the history of Cold War Africa as well. Mm -hmm. His books are very interesting. Um, and, um, you know, kind of, so he, I think, as, as far as I understand, he he um, commented on and or maybe also attended the Bandung Conference, and he um, yes. said yes. that... Yeah. Um, the you know kind of that 
essentially these countries have nothing in common. The only thing in common they have is the West, and mm. having been having had un, unhappy relationships with the West, and you know, kind of, an, an, you know, maybe that doesn't actually connect people that that closely. I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Francis? Well, I, I think it's a very good it's a very good point that you make um, um, about this about the colonial what is it called victim Olympics um, because I, I can also add something um, uh, when you talk about the Africans uh, in my book um, um, when when I put this thing out on Facebook I also had my Scandinavian friends and they share your opinion Corbus they actually don't think that. It's any uh, justification uh, because they were both uh, victims of uh, imperialism, etc., that it should uh, give them a sort of um, uh, excuse for doing what they're doing in Africa. To, uh, um, uh, yeah, but isn't that a cop-out, though, from the Europeans that often say that, well, the past is the past, the today it's different, you know. But at the end of the day, I think when you have a shared history of suffering... Um, mm. That is a bond in some ways. And in some ways, I think, you know, I'm going to take a different opinion than Kobus here. Mm. And mm. I'm, I'm not going to suggest that we play the victim Olympics here. But I do think it's a, a branding differentiating factor. That yeah. is, it is a yeah. way of positioning yourself to say, you know, against mm. this neocolonialism argument that keeps popping up that China is colonizing mm. Africa to say uh, colonizing is not what we do because we suffered it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, and so I, I mean, Kobus, I don't know what you think about that, but I do think that there's something there to say we are different than these other people. I know the mm-hmm. Europeans love to kind of downplay the the, the history, that's and, and Americans too. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but I think it's, it's also, you know, part, part of part of the there's a bit of a paradox in China's um, position in in this case because on the one hand we're exactly like you, you know, we went through the same problems and we're facing the same challenges. However, we're also an example to be aspired to, you know, kind of, so there is a situation of like being the older brother in the relationship. Well, it's, you know, kind of you, you, you lived under the same parents, but then, you know, kind of you still are, you know, several years ahead in, in school, you know, so it's, it's, it's a little, you know, kind of, it, it does, it's, it's not the same thing as being, dic- being condescended to or dictated to by Europe, but it's also mm-hmm. not a hundred percent equal relationship. No, it's not. And that's a no, very similar no. positioning as to the United States, by the way. Um, which positions itself as an exceptional country, the house on the hill, uh, but at yeah. the same time emphasizes democracy for everybody, that everybody's equal. Uh, mm. China and the United States are both uh, exceptional countries as they define mm. themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. Francis, let me, let me ask you this question of how you think the perception of, you know, of, of, of Chinese leadership of the third world that was something that was introduced at the Bandung Conference does mm. that have and and, does, and China still to this day does project some of that to say we are representing you and I'll give you an example of this mm. uh, in mm. the World Trade Organization talks as soon as China yeah. became a member it basically mm. shut down the Doha round and it basically yeah, yeah. said you know that mm. the the agricultural subsidies that Japan the United States and Europe are affording mm. themselves is simply not acceptable uh, mm. Africa the emerging markets and whatnot uh, they are suffering uh, the new the, the the WTO got back underway again only after Chinese support of a new Brazilian leader. And again, yeah. so one of the, the, the themes that we see in, in Chinese diplomacy today, particularly in somewhere like Africa, is mm. to kind of round up all those votes at the United Nations to be the big brother as the one who mm. can stand up to the United States, can stand mm. up to Japan and the European Union. Do you mm. think that that is 
something that is actually happening, or is that Chinese fantasy? No, it's 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 actually happening, and and um, and and what I try to actually do in my book, um, um, uh, because the question you ask is also related to uh, what Corbus uh, said and 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 your and your viewpoint, etc. What I try to put down in my book is that since uh, um, going back a long time ago, China has basically seen. It's on interest, and and I must uh, uh, um, um, emphasize this uh, this uh, point that, um, given that you know agriculture um, uh, commod um, um, uh, based economies uh, um, uh, etc., um, we share a lot with the with the Chinese, you know, and even Asian countries. So. The leadership that China showed in WTO and in other forums, uh, um, which we don't have time to mention, is actually a welcome break for the African countries. Because, you see, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, many of African countries have been very weak when it comes to negotiating favorable trade uh, agreements, when it comes to uh, negotiating favorable uh, market access uh, to uh, uh, Western markets for their for their for their produce. So what China did is actually uh, not only demonstrating leadership, but basically saying that our interest, a big part's interest, is in the same as as the African countries. And let me give you one example, Eric. You know, for many years, the U.S. has basically been subsidizing the cotton farmers in the U.S. Now, Burkina Faso, uh, Mali, and in Africa, those countries have cried for years, please do not subsidize your cotton because you are hurting. No, it, it doesn't happen. The Chinese don't do that. So, and, again, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and Cobus, this brings up another interesting point here is that, you know, I always felt that, you know, I lived in China for over 10 years and I lived a little bit in Africa. And I felt that because China itself is a, a poor developing country in, for the most of China, um, that a lot of the, the experiences of just day-to-day -day life where things just don't work the way they should, um, you know, poverty is endemic, you know, people don't, don't, re, don't, people often overlook the fact that China has more poor people than Africa does, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is a rather yeah. unusual kind of setting. But so, Kobus, I always felt like that there was actually more commonality in terms of how people on a human level could actually interact with one another because the economic condition was, for the most part, the same, rather than uh, from the West, where there was a huge economic difference between the two, and the chasm was very hard to, to, to cross in that sense. Yeah. But that hasn't, um, I don't think that's played out. And, and, and you and I talked about the, the crappy communications that the Chinese have. But I actually feel that from Bandung to today, uh, the Chinese have missed a big branding opportunity. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you know, uh, that said, I think at the same time, you know, the idea of China, of a China who its GDP incredibly and managed to pull a whole bunch of people into the middle class. I mean, I think that is very powerful in Africa. So, you know, kind of the idea that China used to be very poor and now is less poor, that I think plays very, very powerfully, maybe more powerfully actually than China is still poor at the moment. Yes. Um, among, among other reasons, because, you know, the people who travel between 
between Africa and China, they, they still are. I mean, there isn't widespread popular travel yet between between China and Africa. It's mostly traders and then high level elite people. You know, um, and you know, kind of the traders frequently find it difficult to communicate. You know, um, because of of language barriers and because you know they, there's just no one really listening to them. Um, and you know, kind of the elite people aren't interested in the poor frequently. Um, you know, kind of, so, so, so there isn't really a chance. But, no, hold, you, but, you, but hold on, let me interrupt you there. I mean, there's a growing business for Chinese tourism in Africa. So at least on the Chinese side, there's more Chinese that are coming to Africa. I mean, that's that's true. But I mean, I've, I've you know, kind of the... If, if you're anywhere in Africa, particularly, I think, in Africa, you know, um, those Chinese tourist groups are on the bus or they're off the bus being laid by someone with a flag. Yeah. You know, okay. kind of, they're not hanging out and, like, you know, hanging out in bars and, like, speaking, you know, kind of with, with normal Africans. They, they're frequently not allowed to or they're frequently too scared to. But, you know, but, kind of, so it's not, it's not an it's organic kind of back But it is the first, this is just the first steps. You know, there are young people like Huang Hongxiang who we talked to on the show, this young 20-something-year-old who's doing a... A, a scholarship at uh, at Vits, uh, and there's a new generation of students that are coming over. Yeah, and I guess my my point is that these are early stages in it, in that sense, and, and that will then eventually lead, hopefully, to to more exchanges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, I, I think that's true. Um, so, uh, and, 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 go ahead, Francis. Sorry, and of course, you shouldn't also. Um, I have uh, seen there's quite a lot of Chinese guys marrying African women, you know. So, 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 so there is something going on <laughs> well, <laughs> on the social level but, too, because th- that's th- a big complaint in Nigeria. <laughs> well, th- listen, that's a natural thing, and and you know, we've talked to, we've had a number of shows on this that you have one to two million Chinese who live in Africa. You're going mm-hmm. to start seeing intermarriage. You're going to start seeing yeah. uh, families form. I mean, that's just the way that. You human beings work you know we mm, you know mm. so so we're entering you know into you know a new phase of the history which is demographic in many respects mm, yeah uh, inconceivable yeah, yeah. back in 1955 that today mm. we would have one to two million chinese now living in africa let's just wrap up the show again going back to the bandong conference and of the key themes that joe and lai kind of raised at bandong which of those is most prominent today in the discourse between china and africa I would probably say that um, uh, um, ah, dear, uh, I I would say that one of the main things that still stands is essentially this um, sovereign the respect for the um, for the sovereignty of the country and that there will be no interference whatsoever. Um, in the in the affairs of the African countries, I think that uh, theme, because that is a theme that also in, impacts on the uh, aid. Because if you look at the at the aid policy of China, that is uh, they have these eight principles, and most of that uh, those come from this uh, from the themes of Bandung. So I would say that's probably the most important theme that uh, that uh, that is uh, relevant to uh, today. Kobus, let me put the same question to you. Yes, I tend to agree. I mean, the the non-interference principle is being increasingly complicated. You know, kind of by the fact that, for example, China has um, peacekeepers in certain African countries, and mm-hmm. the the issue of you know, kind of the increasing use of of security companies and security mm-hmm. contractors mm-hmm. and so on to to protect Chinese interests. Um, and there is this recently been um, Zhong Zhenghua, one of uh, you know, kind of China's uh, top envoy to Africa, recently yeah. also said that China needs to have a 
a bigger role in Africa, actually, be, to, mm. because they have such extensive interests. So, mm. you know, kind of, I'm not sure how that, that's going to change. But at, as it stands at the moment, it does seem to, to still govern the way that China does business. I think it's not only uh, from a, a moral standpoint, um, you know, kind of that, that China just respects these countries and don't want to interfere. I think, uh, you know, I think that that is a, a way of thinking that's strong. But I think it mm. also has an, an aside that China doesn't want to overextend itself and get get trapped some in, in, in a kind of a, a trouble that's not its own making. No, but you all, know, so in that sense, it, it, mm, it is mm. differentiating itself from the U.S. a little bit. No, but also remember the non-interference policy is as well uh, a defensive mechanism as much as it's anything else because exactly, they, they don't exactly. want anybody yeah. to interfere in their internal affairs. Precisely. So exactly. I think, you know... So it plays both ways. It does yeah. play both ways. I'm going to actually take a different tact than, you, than the two of you. I'm going mm. to say that I think the most important theme that's still present today that emerged in Bandung is this mm. idea of China as the leader of the of, of the of, of the third world. Um, mm. You're seeing the investments that China is making in the African Union. Um, we're seeing that China is really taking on a bigger role at the United Nations in the WTO in a lot of these multilateral forums where it says it sees itself as representing a different a third way, which is a, of course this non-aligned movement type of thinking. Uh, mm. China, at the end of the day, ultimately will preserve its own interests, but sometimes its interests are maybe in line, more in line with the developing world than they are with the uh, the first world. So, um, okay, um, Francis. You, Eric, sorry uh, to interrupt you. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Eric, do, do you see, how does that stroke with, with the, the, the lot of attention being given to groups like BRICS in China? Do you think that that, um, well, do you think that you're not going to are they are they seeing themselves as now not kind of the the part part of the the kind of super friends? But see, this is my know, point. Kind of this is my point, Hobus. You know, and Francis will get to you in a quick second because I hear you yeah. jumping at the bit there, um, yeah. which is this idea that um, you know. In the establishment of the BRICS Bank, you know they want they were going to be the largest shareholder. This was something mm-hmm. Beijing really, really wanted to push. Uh, mm. But as a result, the other members of the BRICS kind of pulled away in part because mm. they were afraid that any bank that had sixty to seventy percent control by the Chinese would not be yes. uh, a true multilateral bank. It would be ultimately a Chinese bank. So I think there is some apprehension on the part of other members of the BRICS, also other members of the so-called developing world, uh, about China's role. Uh, in terms of representing their interests because it's not really clear what China's interests are and if they are always are going to be aligned. Francis, last word to you. Yes, I was just going to say, Kobos just took the words out of my mouth because I was going to say, Eric, I would disagree with you slightly on that leadership theme because you now have BRIC emerging uh, as an alternative uh, um, to a one uh, country dominating like China. So I would say uh, the leadership of that part of the world uh, is probably much more complicated now because you have different stages of development in these countries. And then, uh, uh, so um, so BRIC, in my view, and, and all the other efforts at... Uh, at um, uh, finding uh, various uh, um, themes to agree on, it probably uh, has left this question a bit open. Because even 
even BRIC, I'm not sure if they're truly representative. No. Uh, yeah. So, um, um, well, yeah. this is this is a very germane question right now, in part because in the context of the relative decline of American global hegemony mm. and power, mm. Uh, mm. who will fill some of that vacuum, if anybody mm-hmm. does? And I contend mm. that we may not have hegemonic mm. powers anymore. Global hegemonic powers. That may be something that's maybe a vestige of the 20th century. So this very notion that China will somehow fill a vacuum and become a leader uh, maybe is an antiquated way of thinking about the world. So uh, we could go on probably for another 30 minutes, no doubt, talking about this. But Francis, um, what we do at the end of every show is we kind of want to dump people off and introduce them to what you're thinking, reading, and writing. And what's the best way that people can stay in touch with you and also for them to follow uh, your China-Africa scholarship? Yes, the best way uh, is that I have a Facebook page, uh, on uh, which is um, a page about the book called China and Africa Love Affair. It's if you search on Facebook. Um, but I've, I've also uh, discovered your project, the China-Africa project, which I, I believe is the best resource I found uh, um, so far, and Woo-hoo. I'll be contributing to that. Well, yes, wonderful. so you can you can follow me on the China-Africa project. Um, basically, that's it. I'll be coming. I'll be contributing a lot to that. That would project. be great. Uh, the book mm. is China and Africa Love Affair. Uh, it's 108 pages available on Amazon, either a soft copy, a softback, or a Kindle. I bought the Kindle edition, so uh, uh, so I encourage you to go to go check that out. And Kobus, of course, if people want to follow you, what's the best way they can stay in touch? Um, you'll see me on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I put my name in brackets when I comment. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And with Kobus, we're both updating the Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Of course, if you'd like to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is on iTunes. Just type in China Africa Project and you'll we'll come right up there, uh, but you can also listen to us on SoundCloud, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, we post the show every other day when it's available. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.